Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you are joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a passage of Scripture, maybe something going on in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe things going on in the world, other religions, all that kind of stuff, you can send them in on our multiple live social media, etc. platforms. And I will be fielding those as we go along live today. And these young men here will be delving into the Bible to find those answers for you. So that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. Any honest question, really, as long as you know, we're going to delve into Scripture to find the answers. We're very glad that you're joining us and participating on those platforms. My name is Dave Robson. I will be hosting today and, as I mentioned, fielding the questions as they come in on those multiple places. With us today, Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin. How are you doing, young men? I think I can say that. I'm kind of the senior one here, aren't I? Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. About Always dancing the line between gallows humor and correctability. Mm -hmm. Yes. Aren't we just? <laughs> aren't we just? I'm doing well. You're doing well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing to say like that? Yeah, no. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for making yourself available for people's questions. And I know you're going to get into something in the early uh, parts as well more, more on that in a moment oh you're um, going to be getting into it <laughs> yeah he's having me do reading through that uh well we'll get to it in a minute <laughs> reminded me of a shakespeare play that i did uh but anyway before we go any further uh, again let me uh just explain to you some of the platforms we have as i mentioned the reason for hope is a live broadcast we're here monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m mountain standard time here in tucson arizona that's where we're based uh, but of course, you can join us all around uh, the world through the wonders of the internet. So it's very exciting these days. <laughs> uh, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So our website's a great place to go. While you're there, just have a little bit of a, um, a click around and check out some of the events going on. You'll see the events page right there, one of those tabs. We have so many Bible studies and groups and all kinds of things, so don't be a stranger. If you're in the Tucson area, um, do check out our website as you're there. But for the purposes of Reason for Hope, our Watch Live tab right there, if you click on there, it'll take you to our live page. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown, you'll see a schedule of upcoming events, not only Reason for Hope shows, Monday through Friday, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a Wednesday evening service. We're currently going through the book of Ezekiel and three Sunday morning services, currently going through the book of Acts. So we're a Calvary Chapel church here. Most commonly you'll find Calvary chapels go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, um, that style of teaching. So if you're in the area, come check us out. Uh, but when we're live on that page, you'll see us live there. You'll see a chat function. You can sign in with a username and be part of the broadcast there, ccftucson.online.church is the direct link or just follow the link from our website as I mentioned, calvarychristianfellowship.com. On Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, search for that or facebook.com slash ccftucson. You'll find us live there as well. You can also see some of the archive shows and um, other things that we post. Uh, don't forget to like and to share. We'd love to reach uh, not only you but your friends as well. Just uh, tell everybody about us. We'd love to reach more people. So we'd love it if you would do that. Just share us around, like it. And again, comment, uh, send in your questions on all these platforms. We have an app as well. If you go to your app store, whether it's iPhone or Android, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You'll see our uh, Calvary Chapel White Dove on the red background logo right there. 
you can download it on your devices, but also on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel. So if you have a smart TV or one of those devices, you can watch us on your big TV screen as well. On YouTube, you can join us. The channel is called A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. That's a good place to go if you want to check out uh, the archive. Maybe you want to revisit a question that we covered. Um, Sean here puts the questions in the info on the video so you can see what questions we covered and you can navigate through the video um, and also our services as well. So if you missed a show or want to rewatch it, you can go to YouTube. That's a great place to do that. Um, pastor Scott, our senior pastor here, is not with us today. He's with us Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays usually. Uh, he's on Twitter at Scott uh, R4H. That's Scott R4H. On Twitter, he posts highlights from the show. He posts commentary on news and world events, prophetic things, um, world events from a biblical perspective, that kind of thing. So it's fun to follow along with him. He gives usually a, a prophetic kind of update um, on uh, the show when he's on as well. So you check that out in the archive as well. And then last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to a pre-recorded version of our show. Man, I'd love to uh, work on getting us back live on the radio. I think we can do that when we find that little device that we lost that we did that with. But for Take now- Take my word for it as one who manned the program during that era. You don't need the stress. <laughs> hey, I'm here now, Sean. I make all things work. <laughs> yeah, don't don't, don't I sense. know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I make the, all things stressful and take that on myself. Anyway, questions for hope at gmail.com is our email address. If you listen on the radio, use that email address and we'll get to those questions on our next show. And consider sometime joining us on one of our live platforms where you can uh, send your question in live and not a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> so all that being said, um, Peter, you're here today. Would you like to pray for us? We love to pray and obviously see, ask Since for, I'm sitting here. Since you just yeah, <laughs> might as well do something. Since there's no one, you know, better or <laughs> you have warm blood in your veins. <laughs> no, we love to pray and obviously we want the Lord to speak more than we do. As Sean says, I stole that from Sean. It's a good <laughs> quote. But. All right, cool. Yeah, let's pray. Yeah. Uh, dear God, we're very thankful for you. We love you so much, and uh, we want to spend this time focusing in on your word. Uh, we want to be able to honor your truth in the way that we answer these questions, and we pray that all those listening would be blessed by it, that they would be uh, grow in their understanding of who you are and what you've done for them, and to be a little bit more prepared to communicate about your, your word and your truth to those around them. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. 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 Well, what are you guys going to share with us today? What you got? What you got for us? So it's Thursday, and uh, on Thursdays we've been giving book recommendations. Yeah. We've been going through right. various uh, works that we find personally edifying throughout church history. So we've gone for the really relevant and contemporary, uh, like C.S. Lewis, to really obscure and old, <laughs> like Athanasius of Alexandria. And uh, <laughs> today we're going to go kind of somewhere in the middle. We're going to be talking about a guy named John Milton. And I have asked Dave to read the quotes from this particular book. It is called Paradise Lost because John Milton was a British guy. And yeah. so who better to read the quotes than another <laughs> British guy? Guess like basically interchangeable. 
<laughs> basically into <laughs> I feel like kind of racially profiled yeah. you know but that's okay hey, it's, it's a great honor <laughs> that's the best representative of their majesty the queen yeah. are Chef, her subjects have Sean read it it's even better <laughs> in his faux British accent yeah that, that, that's my Winston Churchill if you like it or not. it's a very good and as I said reading over this today when you sent it to me I did a Shakespeare play years ago um, of course you did I, yes, <laughs> back in England, I think I was Nim, the villainous character from uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, I think it was. <laughs> I can probably still remember my monologue. I couldn't tell you what that play was about at all. <laughs> I don't, I, yes. So anyway, it reminded me of those days, some of this old English. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here to explain it to it, even though I'm Absolutely. British so, myself. Uh, John Milton was an interesting guy. He grew up in the 1600s, which means that he grew up right after the Protestant Reformation. And he himself grew up as a Protestant. And he participated in the overthrow of the monarchy. So at that time, the British people, after the Reformation, people were really thinking, okay, well, if the church isn't infallible, then what institution is? Mm. And prior to that time, a lot of the kings in Europe had been deriving their power from the Catholic Church. There was a, a doctrine called the divine right of kings that was really popular at that time where they thought, well, we're ruling because God has actually ordained us to rule over these people. So basically everything we do is infallible and everything we do is great. And as long as the Pope of Rome signs off on it, it's all groovy. And after the overthrow of Rome, people started thinking, wait, 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 if God hasn't given you the right to rule over us as king, then who has? Isn't it just arbitrary? And aren't you just being a, a tyrannical dictator? And so they overthrew the king and Milton was actually totally for the overthrow of the king, but then the king's brother, and they actually decapitated that king, by the way, uh, <laughs> then the king's brother came back and he reinstituted the monarchy. As uh, those of you guys who know anything about Britain today, you would know, okay, that must not have worked because they still have a monarchy, right. obviously. So uh, the monarchy was reinstituted. He had to go into hiding for a little bit. And all this time he was writing poetry, but nothing that he was doing was really taking off. And he continued to write, but he started to create a vision a poetic vision of the fall of Satan and the fall of mankind. And the reason why he was doing it primarily is because he wanted to explain to his fellow Christians how someone could be rebellious towards one authority but submissive towards God. Mm. And a lot of his ideas actually were taken on by guys like John Locke and then later by our founders, the idea that you could actually resist a government in submission to God that that's possible to be rebellious in a submissive way. And so he wrote Paradise Lost to help people understand that. And it's, it's really fascinating. He wrote it when he was blind, so he actually couldn't write it himself. So what he would do is he would memorize long segments of this poem, and then he would recite them to his daughter, and the daughter would, would write them out, scribe mm. them out. This is a very long poem. Take you a couple hours to read it from front to back. Wow. But it is a fictionalized version of the fall. So he's elaborating on things, he's embellishing things, and he's changing things to fit this particular narrative. So mm. don't read it thinking that you're getting like the actual God's honest truth of what happened mm. in the fall, but read it understanding that he's trying to present the way, as in his own words, the ways of God to man and the ways of even Satan to man mm. so that we can understand them a, a little bit more clearly. Mm. And so I'm going to have Dave read some of the writings of this book because it's, uh, I, I told Dave before this, and I truly believe it, it is the most beautiful book I've ever read. The writing here is fantastic. There's a reason why it's known as one of the greatest poems ever written. 
it is quoted in, in the same breath that people would quote like Beowulf or the Iliad. It stands at that level. But also know that it's not poetry in a rhyming format. It's an epic poem. So it doesn't rhyme, but the language utilizes different metaphors and symbols mm. to be a poetic depiction of what's going on. But as we're going through it, what I, what I really want to do in looking at this, given that just this week we had, uh, a, a, I think it was the Grammys, <laughs> where you yeah. had a presentation where people were dressing up like Satan and having a, a very interesting satanic ritual thing going on on CBS, which is a major network. Yeah. And the uh, first lady was there. So, like, it's not that satanic stuff has been uh, absent yeah. from well, like our culture. Like he called it a presentation. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to see a lovely presentation. A lovely satanic presentation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so satanic stuff is not new in our current culture. And I'm actually going to talk about how Milton actually was the reason why that happened. Right. So his depiction of Satan was picked up by his more liberal counterparts and glorified. And we're going to talk about the people who did that and why. But after that, you have more and more representations of Satan being a good figure in the West, uh, moving into even our age. What's unique about this time is, you know, when you had Kiss doing their thing or Black Sabbath and all these people doing their thing, it was like a counterculture. It was the young people who were into it and the old people were saying, no, 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 that's bad, that's satanic. Now we got, again, the first lady... (laughs) Yeah. Right, you have the president's wife, who's no spring chicken, by the way, yep. going out and introducing these Grammys and talking at them. This is no longer some young rebellious thing. This has moved from counterculture to just culture, and so we're going to mm. talk about why that has happened, and we're going to use Milton's work to do so. So, mm. so we're so Dave, the rebels now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Dave, uh, I've I've just picked out a couple quotes because I want to show how Satan is depicted in this book but also how God is depicted in this book. Mm. And uh, again, this is Milton's view of rebellion, but also Milton's view of submission as a means of freedom and liberty. Mm. So uh, let's get into it. So okay. start out with the first quote. All right. So Satan, right? Satan speaking here? The Satan speaking. The Satan speaking. So you got to do a, a, a dark <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. <laughs> uh, farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor. One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be, but less than he whom thunder hath made greater Here at least we shall be free. Here we may reign secure and in my choice. To reign is worth ambition uh, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Good job, man. That was was way better than my Yankee accent could have ever (laughs) taken us. uh, But yeah, this this is an interesting point in the beginning of the poem in which Satan has been thrown out of hell, I mean thrown out of heaven into hell, and his generals are essentially coming up to him saying, hey, we've lost. But if you notice in this quote that Dave just read, what Satan is saying is we have not lost Mm. because God has kept in us our consciences and our minds. And in our minds, we can make, to quote, a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Mm. So he's saying that being in heaven was hellish to me because I didn't want to submit to God. I didn't want to worship God. Later Mm. on in the book, 
one of the demons suggests that they, they do a faux repentance and see if God will forgive them. But another demon says, why would we do that? It's a hellish existence to spend eternity worshiping one whom we hate. So I, I like what he does there where he's showing that even God casting people into hell is him, in a sense, acquiescing to their own free will. They don't want to be in heaven worshiping God. And he says, it is better, this is the most famous quote from the entire poem, it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Mm. He is saying being free, being liberated is so important that even if I have to spend my liberation in hell, it's a worthy endeavor. Now, this goes deep into our culture where many people actually believe that in order to be free, it means that you have to be completely free to do whatever you want, right? That's how they define freedom. Sorry to quote Frozen in the same breath as Milton. But, <laughs> no, you are not. But, uh, uh, it, uh, it froze it. Elsa sings the song, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's the Let It Go song. Yeah. For those, of you parent, those of you guys who aren't parents and didn't hear it a billion times. Uh, or Marines. So, <laughs> so what she's depicting in that song is what Satan is depicting in this poem. That in order to be free, it means throwing off anything that constrains you. Anything mm -hmm. that keeps you from doing what you want is a limitation in your liberty, and therefore it is bad. Mm -hmm. It is evil. Right. Now this is... Percy B. Shelley, about 100 years after Milton wrote this, and he's a romantic poet, and he's commenting on the figure of Satan and specifically about what Satan is saying in the quote you just read. Now listen to what he says. Nothing can exceed the energy and magnificence of the character of Satan as expressed in Paradise Lost. It is a mistake to suppose that he could ever have been intended for the popular personification of evil implacable hate and patient cunning and a sleepless refinement of device to inflict the extremest anguish upon his enemy these things are evil and although venial in a slave are not to be forgiven in a tyrant although redeemed by much that ennobles his defeat in one subdued are marked by all that dishonors his conquest in the victor milton's devil as a moral being is far superior to his god as one who <coughs> per perseveres in some purchase uh, purpose, which he has conceived to be excellent in spite of adversity and torture. Mm. So what he's saying is that Satan, in describing his lot in hell, is a moral agent, number one, because he's oppressed, mm. and number two, because he's rebelling against an authority, because all authority is restrictive, and any restriction is taking away liberty. So therefore, any decision to rebel is a decision to pursue liberty, and liberty is a virtue. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Does that sound familiar to where we're at today? Yeah. Right. So Satan has become a flagship character right. for a lot of people in this mindset for that reason. He is the figurehead of rebellion mm -hmm. against a system of oppression that puts down people in a lower class in the system for the elevation of those in the upper class of mm -hmm. a system. And any type of limitation is an evil. So if you're looking around our country and you're like, why do they think Christians are evil? Why are they firebombing pro, you know, like crisis pregnancy centers? Yeah. The, the centers that are literally just there to offer aid and help to women who are going through a crisis pregnancy. They don't even force them to keep the child. They're just yeah. giving them options and help in their decision making. Why would anyone be against it? Because any institution erected that implicates that in order to be free, you must limit your decisions to what is good, 
yeah. is a limitation that provides for oppression, mm. and therefore it must be torn down. Mm. It must be rebelled against. No matter what, no matter who's in power, it has to be rebelled against. Yeah. So when you looked at uh, any of you who actually saw it, the presentation on Sunday, the satanic presentation, as I will now call it forever, <laughs> yeah. uh, th you have a uh, a guy who claims that he is non-binary or uh, pansexual. I don't, I don't even know what he's calling himself. Androgynous. Yeah. Sam Smith. And then uh, Kim Petras, who is a man who claims that he is a woman. And they are singing a song called Unholy. And the point of the song is to suggest that maybe being unholy is a good thing. Mm. Maybe rebelling against what the culture deems to be holy is actually what's evil. And what is unholy, quote unquote, is actually what is good, mm. much like Satan. Perhaps heaven actually is hell and hell actually is heaven, mm. no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. So that that's the, the view from the pit. That's the view from Satan. <laughs> now let's elevate ourselves. Let's look at how Milton depicts God. So this is the father speaking. Okay. Whose fault? Whose but his own? In great he had of me. All he could have, I made him just and right. Sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Their own revolt, not I, if I foreknew, for knowledge had no influence on their fault. I formed them free, and free they must remain. Till they enthrall themselves, I else must change their nature and revoke the high degree, uh, decree, unchangeable, eternal, which ordained their freedom. They themselves ordained their fall. I love that quote. And anyone, by the way, when I'm when we're going through this book, if you know of anyone or you yourself have struggled with the sovereignty of God, if you've ever asked yourself the question, why would God put a tree in the garden that would tempt us to fall? Yeah. Isn't that God being cruel? You know, why is it that God does the things that he does? Isn't isn't it wrong? Like, why does God tell us that this is wrong when it feels good? Isn't he uh, baiting us? Isn't he being evil or mean? Read Par I really encourage you to read Paradise Lost. It, I think it will help you to understand the workings of God. I really do. Mm. But as you see in God's speech, this is one my favorite quote from the entire poem, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. What God is saying mm. in this instance is he's saying that Satan has fallen, not because I caused him to fall. Notice what he says, for knowledge had no influence in their fault. Just because I knew it would happen doesn't mean I made them do it. It just means I knew they would do it. And he's saying, why are they free to fall? Because I created them free, and free they must remain. But I also created them sufficient to stand. So some people criticize the Bible because they say, well, God set us up for failure. He knew we were going to fall, so therefore God actually created us to fall. And God's response is, no, I created them to stand, but I also created them free to fall. They had the power to resist the temptation, but they also had the freedom to succumb to it. And so he's justifying himself in the heavenly realm. He's explaining why he would create free agents, why would he allow them to fall, and what the result of it is. Now, we're going to get into the response of the son. Uh, so this is a section of the poem, again, where the father and the son are communicating with one another in front of the angels. And the son has now agreed to take the sin of man upon himself and die in our place. Now, the son represents how we ought to be or how we ought to see submission. So this is really, really cool because what we're going to see from the Son, anyone in our culture who says, well, any restriction is, is an imposition on your liberty, 
right? Mm-hmm. You should be free to do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, that, that's what freedom is, is being able to do whatever you want. Well, we're going to get a different definition from Jesus here. Mm. So read the, the response the of Jesus. Okay. Happy for man so coming, he her aid can never seek once dead in sins and lust, atonement for himself or offering meat, indebted and undone hath none to bring. Behold me then, me for him, life for life, I offer on me, let thine anger fall. Account me man, I for his sake will leave thy bosom in this glory next to thee, freely put off and for him lastly die. Well pleased on me, let death wreck all his rage. Then with the multitude of my redeemed shall enter heaven long absent and return. Father, to see thy face, wherein no cloud of anger shall remain, but peace assured and reconcilement wrath shall be no more. Actually, wrath, we pronounce it in England, so I'm going to say wrath, (laughs) shall be no more. Thenceforth, but in thy presence, joy entire. His words here ended, but his meek aspect silent yet spake and breathed immortal love to mortal men, above which only shone filial obedience as a sacrifice. Glad to be offered, he attends, he attends the will of his great father. Isn't that just, I mean, that's just good, right? <laughs> I don't know how you could like, listen to that and not see how amazingly beautiful this text is. So Jesus represents a different version of freedom. So notice, I'm going to re, uh, reread a couple of the, the quotes that Dave just read. He says, freely put off the glory that I had with you for him and for him lastly die. Mm. The son is saying, I am expressing my liberty in being bound. I'm expressing Mm. freedom in being sacrificed. Mm. And why? Because he sees freedom is not doing what you should want. Freedom is doing what you should. Mm. That's what freedom is. Mm. The person who does only what they want doesn't become more free. They become more in bondage to their base desires, and they become less able to experience love. We're going to see this in the final quote from Satan that I'm going to have you read. Uh, But the final quote from Satan, we're going to see what his rebellion does to him. Mm. But it actually does not make him free. It makes him less free to experience the greatest blessings of God. Mm. Jesus is saying, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. But I lay aside my liberty and my prerogatives to die for man. Why? In filial, uh, filial obedience. I think, did you call it filial? I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> I don't yeah. pronounce it in English. Uh, but anyway, uh, filial obedience, meaning the love that I have for my father, I lay down my life. And this is very biblical. In John 14, right before the cross, Jesus says to his disciples, after tonight, you will know how much I have loved the father. Right, So he mm. does go to the cross for our sake, but he also goes to the cross for the sake of the Father because he loves his Father so much. But then in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set out before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus uses his liberty, he uses his freedom to resist the thing that would be selfish and easy in order to embrace a hard death mm. that brings about greater prosperity and love. Mm. Paul says, we are no longer under law, we're under grace. He says, all things are lawful for me, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, but not everything is beneficial. Right. As Christians, we are absolutely free, but we follow Jesus in his liberty, and we, we understand being free to do anything is actually not freedom at all. Yeah. 
Freedom means being able to choose the things in my life that will make me more free, yeah. that will make me have more liberty, and resisting the things that will steal my liberty. Paul in Romans 6, he says, though I am free, I will not be brought under bondage to any of my flesh. Mm. So he's saying, I, I willfully resist my flesh. Why? Because it would make me less free. Yeah. It would make me less able to do the things that I want to do. Mm. So if somebody uses their freedom to become a drug addict, they're not free. They're more in bondage than you and I. Yeah. And it's their freedom that made them that way. So in our culture, we mm. think that freedom is an absolute good. No, it is not. Yeah. Freedom is a useful good. It makes things better, right? It gives the ability for love, as Jesus says in this passage, right? It gives the ability for love. It gives the ability for goodness, but it isn't a good unto itself. And therefore, it could be misused and liberty could be turned in on itself. Mm. So one more quote from Satan. What's the effect of ultimate rebellion? Okay. Warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. Oh, wherefore? He deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was in that bright eminence and with his good unbraided none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks? How do? Yet all his good proved ill in me and wrought but malice, lifted up so high I disdained subjection and thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude. But heaven's free love dealt equally to all. Be then this love accursed, since love or hate, to me alike, it deals eternal woe. Nay, cursed be thou, since against his thy will, choose freely what is now so justly ruse. Be miserable, which way shall I flee? Infinite wrath and infinite despair. Which way I flee is hell, myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. So farewell hope, and with hope farewell, where, farewell <laughs> fear, farewell remorse, all good to me is lost. Evil be thou my good, by thee at least." So in an infinite rebellion, what Milton is saying is if you rebel against the right power structures, you become more free. But if you rebel against the wrong ones, there is an actual power structure to this world that holds it together. If you rebel against the wrong one, it doesn't make you more free. It mm. puts you more in bondage. Notice what he's saying. He can't go back. He knows he can't go back. But he recognizes that he was happy in heaven as a servant. But his desire to rule is so strong that he says... Uh, he, he says in this that he is hell no matter what, like uh, which way I fly, everywhere I fly is hell. I myself have become hell, yet he says, but it seems a heaven to me, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Because mm. what he's saying is my will to power, my will to, to be autonomous and to be free is so strong that I'm willing to give up. What does he have to give up? Hope, remorse, mm. and all good. Yeah. All good is lost to me. So when we when we rebel against God, when we rebel against the good of God, we're rebelling against our own interests. We're becoming less free. We're becoming less ourselves. We're becoming less good than we can normally be. So when we read in the Bible and the Bible says, thou shalt not dot, 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 and we read it and we say, that's so wrong. Mm. 
This, this is something I like to do. Why would God re restrict me from this? That's oppressive, right? Why would God tell me I can't have sex outside of marriage? Why, can't God, why could God tell me that I shouldn't be lustful or greedy or covetous? Why would God restrict this good thing from me, mm. just as Adam and Eve thought about the fruit? Why mm. would God restrict a good thing from me? And the answer is, he's not restricting it from you because it's good. He's restricting it from you because it will end in sorrow. Mm. Not that it won't be immediately pleasurable, yeah. but its end will always be sorrowful. Mm. This also gets to, in our modern age, he predicted it, which I think is fascinating. So Milton predicts postmodernism in the 1600s, mm. right? Notice what Satan is saying and how it reflects postmodern philosophy that is alive and well and rampant within the universities uh, when he says, evil be thou my good, by thee at least. He's saying, in my mind, I think that what I'm doing is good, yeah. and that makes it good. And I think that what you're doing is evil, so that makes it evil. Right. Just my perception makes it so. I think I am a man trapped in a woman's body. I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. It makes it so. Yeah. I don't have to justify it beyond what I think because my mind has become my sovereign because I've rebelled against any external force of reality. And the only thing I am bowing to now are the dictates of my own soul. Yeah. And you think that makes you free, but it doesn't. It erodes your soul because you were created for a purpose. And when you rebel against that good purpose, you're only hurting yourself. Yeah. You're not hurting God. Notice as God mm. responds to Satan in his speech, he's not hurt by what Satan is doing. He's not harmed by it, should I say. He's hurt emotionally because he loves us, but he's not harmed physically because we can't hurt God. Mm. But his concern is for what we're doing to ourselves. That our rebellion, at the end, we think we're rebelling against God, but really all we're rebelling against is our own good. And that is what God offers to us. Mm. So when a Christian goes and submits before God, when we recognize, Man, I need to, I've, I've recognized I've made a mess out of my life, I need to bow to God, I need to bow to the king of the universe, I need to submit my life to him, that is the hardest thing in the universe for a human being mm -hmm. to do. We don't want to bow to God. We don't want to bow to a sovereign. We want to sit up in our own pride and make our own morality and our image so that we can feel good about ourselves. When you submit to God, you're submitting to his justice and you're submitting to his righteousness and his holiness, and that will convict you. That will make you feel like you have fallen because you have, but it also frees you up to receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness, which will make you far more free than rebellion ever could. Mm. So Milton does a beautiful job of laying this out. Again, I highly encourage you guys to read this book on your own. It's it's really beautiful. You can get audio recordings of it. I think they're available pretty much for free on YouTube or, or other places right. like that. You can hear other British guys reading. For the right fee, I'll do the entire <laughs> works. Dave will read his, uh, his audio book version will be out next yeah. month. For a limited fee. Thanks for plugging that. <laughs> yeah. I'll get to work on it. No, I was going to say, you were doing progressively better as we went. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you were Thank like you. really getting into the characters. And Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Your performance was very rousing. <laughs> Thank you so much. But yeah, I, I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you have any questions about it, you could ask. But let's get to the questions that have already been sent to yes. us. Yes. Yeah, for those just joining us, uh, Thursdays, these guys have been doing book recommendations. So we were on that. But as you said, we're going to get to some questions that you guys are sending in. A question from Susan. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, when he is praying to God in verse 5 by saying, I pray, Lord, all caps, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, why in verse 11 does it change to, O Lord, I pray, uh, 
O Lord, I pray, the Lord in verse 5, all capitals, meaning Jehovah God the Father, then why does it change to Lord, lowercase, in verse 11, generally referring to Jesus? Nehemiah wouldn't have known Jesus at this time. It was 400 years before Jesus was born. So please explain why. Flip-flop back and forth. Well, avoiding the obvious blasphemies. Um, Lord, in generalities, does not apply to Jesus. And the Jews at the time of Nehemiah would have been familiar with Jesus. They referred to him as the Metatron, the angel of the Lord is most commonly how he's referred to. Uh, when we're talking about the use of L-O-R-D, by the way, Jehovah is in no way accurate to how that would have been pronounced. It was a German attempt to pronounce it when Martin Luther and the other reformers were trying to make the Bible accessible in modern languages, not just the Latin Vulgate. That was a very well-intended attempt. But when we see LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, Y-H-V-H is what's being summarized there, the covenant name of God. Then we see L-O-R-D in regular letters, and I don't know how, but uh, I guess this is where we're starting. The concern is, oh, well, that's not the LORD. That's a Lord, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would argue this, that Jesus isn't God, he's a lesser God, so you, you lowercase the references to him or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we're talking about the Lord, it's literally just another word or title of respect. In Hebrew, it would be the generic term for God, Elohim, that's generally how it would be translated, or in Greek, it would be kurios, as a equivalent of a sire or sir, someone with authority, because that's what God means, one with power. So taking this one step at a time, in Nehemiah's prayer, he aggressed, uh, he aggressed, he addresses God personally by the covenant name that he introduced himself to Moses as in Exodus 3. He continues in the prayer by addressing him as Lord, meaning sir or master. Hmm. So it would no more be addressing a different person and making some sort of anachronism than me turning to Dave and saying, you know, Dave, and then further down, I guess, six verses later in the conversation saying, so as the worship leader of Calvary Christian Fellowship and sir, and as the parent to, uh, well, I won't mention your kids' names on the air because then they'd associate with me, but you get the point. This isn't a demeaning of God, a distinction of Jesus from God. It's literally a title, and we need to be very, very careful when we fall into traps that literal cults are built upon, because if we make this undue distinction between God in his full nature and God the Son, we're missing the whole point of the mm -hmm. Trinity. Mm -hmm. Understand what the Trinity is. The Trinity is a term used to define and to describe four fundamental doctrines about the nature of who and what God is. The first principle is that there is one and only one God, that scripture defines there of beings with power, the only entity worthy of being called God is the Lord, mm -hmm. Yahweh. That YHVH, the becoming one, literally is how that would translate, is the only entity worthy of being called God. The nations call everything in its mother God, but we have one Lord and one God to whom we submit, mm -hmm. one God that we worship, one God worthy of worship. Monotheism. The second tenet is that there are certain things that only God can rightfully say about himself. The most easy is Genesis 1.1. If something were to say, I created the heavens and the earth, and I'm not God, I'm lying. 
But if I am God and I claim credit to create the heavens and the earth, I'm just stating a fact. I did that. Hmm. There's things that only God does, and that's one of them. The third tenet, in full irony of this, is that there are three distinct persons that claim those unique divine attributes for themselves. Mm. For instance, in the book of Job, chapter 33, the Holy Spirit, and in Genesis 1 as well, but separate from the section, uh, claims to be the giver and sustainer of life, the creator. In Isaiah 66, the Father is noted as the one who created us, that we, you are the worker, we are the clay, you are the, we are the work of your hands. Mm-hmm. And then likewise, in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, it notes Jesus as the one not only that by whom all things were made, but the one for whom all things were made. Right. So not just creator, but ownership of creation, authority over it. Father, Son, and Spirit are all called creator. Note point two, the things only God should be. The only God then, YHVH, has this unique distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. But what about tenant one, that there's only one God? That's tenant four, Mm -hmm. that these unique entities, these personages within the one God, are not only distinct from one another, but are able to act independently from one another. Mm. And we see this in Isaiah, um, I believe it's 48 and verse 16, as well as in Mark 1, 9 through 11, where at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks from heaven as the Son is being baptized and the Spirit descends upon him as a dove, all independent from one another, yet interacting within the one God. Mm. We see in Isaiah 48, the Lord speaking says, not only in acknowledging his eternal nature, the Lord God, God speaking, says the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. One, two, three. Thus, we have to come up with a term for this because it's incredibly unique. There's people who say, oh, number three, that's where the Trinity came from. No, that's not what the Trinity was meant to define. People say, oh, Lord. So like the Lord is like the Father, and then the little Lord is the Son, and then just no Lord, that's the Spirit. That's how we identify God or whatever. No. Make sure that when we understand these doctrines, when we're approaching Scripture, we don't let cult set the narrative for us, first of all. But second, we make sure that if we give any definition of unique biblical concepts, they're defined biblically. That if a claim's made about God or involving God, that we don't believe that Jesus started to exist 400, it would have been 600, but 400 years after Nehemiah, mm-hmm. according to Micah 5, or Micah, no, it would have been Micah 5 too. Uh, his goings forth were from old, from everlasting, that the Son existed eternally with mm-hmm. the Father and even praises such in the Gospel of John chapter 17. So be very, very careful. And again, full grace and note here, uh, uh, very well-known uh, Christian apologist notes that any lengthy discussion on the Trinity inevitably descends into heresy. Make sure that when we're talking about God that we leave his words to set this tone to define our terms and then we won't get caught into these kinds of traps where we're wondering, so what's the difference between Lord and Lord? One's a personal name, translated, one's a title that is respectfully addressing God, but can address other things as well. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Anything to add to that? Please, Sam. No, it's good. Thank you, Susan. Great question. I hope that helps uh, clear that up uh, for you. A question from Michael. Are you guys familiar with, I guess there's a movement, men going their own way? Yeah. Michael asks, um, what should a Christian uh, view be of that movement, men going their own way? Yeah, it's basically a modern counter movement to the whole, I don't know how many of you guys have the attention span or the 
mental fortitude to recall this, but when uh, Roe versus Wade was being put away, as far as the Supreme Court was concerned in the United States, they did a sex strike where women said that in rather explicit terms, we're not going to engage in physical relationships with men until we get our way in culture. Essentially, this is the same thing, but men are now doing it and they're mocking them incessantly, referring to them as incels and other derogatory terms. But it's essentially an organized online abstinence movement and saying because feminism, or more accurately, matriarchalism, is influencing culture in such a way where men are now starting to be discriminated against both in legislation, like in court cases, and in other areas socially as well, that they're just going to commit to being their own authority. They are not going to submit to the sort of influences they believe that marriage will oppress them with, and just saying that uh, we're not going to engage in those relationships and just live life the way that we want to. When it comes to a biblical, not only perspective of culture and the undoubted errors that are happening on all sides, but also just on the whole principle of abstinence in of itself, First um, Corinthians 7, starting in verse 1, is a perfect place to start. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, who had their share of gender issues, believe me, said, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what the movement essentially is saying. Mm. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This is where the feminists complain, but note as well, this is where the point balances out. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Then it notes not to deprive one another, this is referring to physical relationships, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, once again in reference to marital activities, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Noting this, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, that is single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Then it goes on to note in addressing married couples. If we're in a culture where, and again, this is completely an empathetic point of view for both gender perspectives. When you ask, you know, the classic uh, song lyric, where have all the good men gone? And likewise, men are asking, where are all the good men gone? I've been here this whole time and there's nothing paying off for it. Where have any decent women gone? I, again, I say this in full irony between two married men. I myself am happily single. But when we're talking about this issue, understand that it's resolving a problem without actually dealing with the issue. If this movement's ultimate goal is to separate themselves for the purpose of not removing, but replacing priorities in their life, not for the approval of women, but for the pursuit of God, then all for it. Problem is that's not even remotely close to what this movement is about. It's entirely narcissistic, much like when women do the same thing. What we need to understand as Christians is that in whatever state I am called <laughs> to be content, 
in mm. singleness or in marriage, that if, and this is what the chapter goes on to say, if you are loosed from a wife, do not seek a wife. If you have a wife, do not seek. I think I'm repeating myself, but you get the point. If you are married, don't seek to be loosed from the wife. If you don't have a wife, don't seek a wife, because both are ministries. Both give you an opportunity to honor God in different ways. If we look at this movement and say, well, I'm going to adopt the, uh, the little rascals moniker of the he-man woman haters. I think Three Stooges did it first, but nonetheless, the whole mindset of saying, the best way for me to live my life is liberated from women. Or a woman is to say, you know, I don't need no man. I'm a strong, independent woman. It's the same dumb attitude that's being echoed just with a slightly different pitch, if you don't mind the gender-based humor. When we're talking about this issue, though, that's where you want to start in regards to your question. Um, remembering the name, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Michael, yeah. Michael, when asked the question. 1 Corinthians 7, let that be your foundation as far as the relationship priorities we have. In marriage, the goal will be to get closer to Jesus. Outside of marriage, the goal will be to get closer to Jesus. How that's done is in different ways, but our priorities instead aren't to make sure that the woman's good to me or that the men conform to my idea of how society ought to be run. People in any position of power that they're given are going to abuse it, as we saw, but it's not a virtue in rebellion for its own sake. The idea should be, okay, no women in my life right now are following Jesus, so I'm going to be the exception. And who knows, the Lord might bring someone across your path that surprises you. But if on the other hand that doesn't happen, you haven't lost or gained anything that that ministry wouldn't have fulfilled, just in a different way. Whether you're in my position, where you're single and content in that state, whether you're in Dave's position, where you're single and learning to be content in that state, I can't speak for you, but I'm sure you'd affirm. But you did. <laughs> And, of course, in Peter, where you have a marital relationship and you're honoring God where and how you can in that covenant, it's all the same goal. I don't see any other issue or any other problems or even any acronyms to describe that in an online community. If you run into people like this, just let them essentially get the wiggles out of their system, but it's not a Christian worldview that this is based on. Just make sure that uh, when we're addressing a problem, we don't create bigger ones. And is that Peter? Uh, yeah, I'll just add two quick things. So <clears throat> in the Bible, there are, and a lot of people struggle with this, the Bible presents ideals, but within every ideal, there is there are exceptions. So for instance, a, a very common one that is misquoted is in Proverbs, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Mm. That's an ideal. If I parent my child correctly, they will learn the correct lessons, and if they learn the correct lessons, they'll live the correct way. That's the ideal. Now, there are exceptions to that ideal. I could raise my child perfectly, and they could learn all the right lessons, and they could rebel against all the right lessons. That doesn't disprove that passage. It just suggests that there are exceptions to every rule. Ideally, within the Bible, people get married, right? That's the ideal. That's not always the real, though. That's not always what happens uh, due to various circumstances. And if you read all of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul does mention a present stress that is encouraging him to write the way that he is. So he's not saying that these are ideal circumstances and that's why I'm telling you to do this. He's saying mm. these are unideal circumstances and therefore that changes the dynamics of what the ideal should be. Uh, now, it doesn't change his message, as Sean so, uh, put it so well. The primary message is learning how to be content no matter what your state is. Mm. So I, I would be very weary of Christians who make it sound like singleness is an ideal. It's not. 
it's an unideal situation that might be necessary for unideal situations. Mm. So we have to be very careful about that. The ideal is to be married, right? It is the covenant that God loves. That's what God wants us to do. That's part of the lives that we're supposed to lead. It doesn't always happen, and there are various reasons as to why, and there's consolation for that, but there is an ideal. Much like uh, the ideal of being in marriage is to have kids. It doesn't always work that way, right? There are things right. that preclude you from doing it. But that's the ideal. That's what should happen within a marriage. Mm. And so we have to be very careful to not throw out the ideal in order to glorify the exception. But we also need to be very careful not to denigrate the exception as though it's not valid. And both mistakes can happen on different realms of Christianity. The, the other thing that I'll, I'll point out is uh, I've never heard of this movement, just full disclosure. So mm. I'm just going to take Sean's word for it that it is as he put it. Uh, and I have no reason to doubt him. But <laughs> in what he's talking about, I have seen elements of this uh, creeping up in our culture. And one of the big problems that we get into in our culture is developing resentment based on representatives, right? So I saw that in my, a lot of my friends, right? So a lot of my friends that were the worst womanizers were the ones that were cheated on at some point. Mm. So the friends that were just the most chauvinistic, cruel and just baseless towards women, just going around having sex with as many one, women as they could. Without a doubt, every single one of them had a person that they loved, that they cared for, and they cheated on them, they did them wrong, they broke up with them, and now all girls are out to get me. And mm. so it's my job to get from them what I want and never give myself to them. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the reverse works as well. If you live your life giving into resentment, and demonizing an entire class of people because they one person within that class has wronged you, or maybe even multiple people within that class has wronged you, that is the definition of what we call bigotry, right? Assigning to one group the negative qualities of a singular member. Mm. That's, that is literally the definition of bigotry. So be very, very careful when you start feeling that way. So if someone comes to me and they says, man, like all the girls today, they're just such a mess. Well, so are you. What do you mean all the girls are a mess? All of them? Have you met all of them? I think my wife's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> like that's just, that's just not true. Of course there are a lot of good girls out there. And maybe, I mean, think about yourself. Would a good girl want you given what is going on in your life and given what you're struggling with? And what could you do to be more appealing to the opposite? So instead of being, and that's why they use the term incel. It's derogatory, but it's an involuntary celibate. Someone who the reason why they're doing this is because they've been shunned from women. And so they're telling themselves in their own head, no, 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 women aren't shunning me. I'm shunning them, right? I'm turning them down, yeah. right? That's self-justification. And it's very sad when people resort to that level of self-justification in the face of disappointment. Just understand, perhaps, as Sean said, one of the reasons why you've been let down so much is maybe you haven't met uh, a decent girl. And maybe that has to do with where you spend your time. Maybe that has to do with what you're doing in your life and the kind of person you're becoming. Mm. Uh, that's, that's also equally probable. But one good thing to do is, is, again, aim at the ideal, but seek contentment in all things, as Sean said. If I aim at the ideal and I say, well, one of the things I'm going to try to do in my life is to ask myself, what kind of a person would I want to end up with? And then what kind of a person would that person want or need or be blessed by? And I'm going to do everything I can to become that kind of a person. Yeah. I'm going to do everything I can to become that kind of a person. 
And if I meet someone and it works, great. But if I don't, I'm still content. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't uh, remove the fact that it is an ideal situation to be in a romantic relationship with someone that you love. And, th and that's what Paul gets at in that passage as well as 1 Corinthians 6. So yeah. that's important to understand. Yeah. Um, do you think you guys can answer a question in a minute? Yeah. Uh, basically, the question is from Renee. Will homosexuals go to hell? I'll sum it up like that. Go. One minute. No, Hit because it. the only thing that's going to separate someone from God isn't how they rebel against him. It's a personal rejection of a relationship with Jesus. The use or abuse of our sexuality is just one of the ways that's manifested. If you know someone who struggles in that department and they consider their identity in their activity, the best thing to do is to distance themselves from those assumptions and say, do you know Jesus or don't you? And if mm -hmm. they, you know, fall into the moniker of, oh, I have a relationship with God, oh, I'm spiritual, don't get into specifics. Don't get into the woods of, well, this is how I've chosen to live my life. This is my truth. The Bible doesn't care. So make sure that when any conversation about heaven or hell are discussed, it begins and ends with the door, <laughs> with the way right. to the Father. Yep. If he's ultimately the result of your conversation, then I think you spent a lot better time than just clarifying someone's lifestyle in ways that used to be considered private but now are shouted from the rooftops. Yeah. Other issue. Yeah, indeed. Peter, anything to add in yeah, no, 30 no, seconds? I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Good job. Good yeah, job, Sean. Told you. <laughs> <laughs> I can Nailed do it. it. So got time left to do some ramble. What, Peter? Thank you. <laughs> it's a riff, yeah. <laughs> it's a riff a little bit. Any more quotes in yeah. English? <laughs> yeah. Peter, thank you. Thank you for, for making yourself available. You as well, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for all your questions. It's, uh, what, Thursday today? Tomorrow, Friday will be uh, our last day of the week here at uh, Reason for Hope with you Monday through Friday. Once again, our email address Questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out. Gmail.com. Send in your questions. Apologies if we didn't get your questions. I think we got to most of them. But we will be back tomorrow for more of the same. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.